Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm music journalist Thomas Mooney, and this is New Slang. You're listening to episode 183, where I'm joined by the legendary singer-songwriter, Joe Ely. In case you missed it, this is the second in a three-part series where I'm joined by the Flatlanders. Episode 182 was on Monday, and that was with Jimmy Dale Gilmore. And this coming Friday is episode 184 with Butch Hancock. And of course, this one right here, the middle episode, is with Joe Ely. I'd highly encourage y'all to listen to these in order of Jimmy, Joe, and Butch. They were recorded that way, so I was able to bring up things that Jimmy said to Joe, and then of course, Jimmy and Joe to Butch. And then also, I was able to like let some of those things simmer and to get a little bit better of a picture going forward. Obviously, we talk about the Flatlanders' history and their new album, Treasure of Love, which is out this Friday, July 9th. That should be a given. But as I mentioned during the intro of the episode with Jimmy, there's such a rich and distinct and unique catalog within each of their careers. And that's really what makes the Flatlanders the Flatlanders. The Flatlanders work in 1990 and going forward from that moment because they were such acclaimed solo artists by that point. I don't think it's a a stretch to say that the three individuals who started the Flatlanders in the 70s, they are different people whenever the Flatlanders picks back up in the 90s. There was growth and expansion and these twists and turns for each of them in their careers. And I think Joe maybe had the most interesting solo career of the three. He's had the most solo albums. He's been a part of other groups as well. And throughout the the years, he's had what I would guess what we'd call phases within the big picture. I'll use that lazy puzzle analogy here. Each of those phases, whether that would be like one record or four records, they're all important puzzle pieces that show the, the overall picture. I won't spoil which of these phases that we touched on, but we did talk about a lot of my favorite moments within the Joe Ely catalog. So I do also want to make a little note. This episode is essentially split into two parts. That first part, we did it on Zoom, while the second was on the phone. Long story short, we were having a little bit of trouble with Zoom at the end of that first part. So we ended up switching over to phone call. Today's presenting partner is our pals over at Desert Door Texas Sultal. If you've been listening to New Slang for really any amount of time, you'll know that Desert Door is one of my all-time favorite premium, high-quality spirits. If you haven't or aren't sure what exactly a Sotol is, I'm going to let you in on a little secret that's going to up the game on your liquor cabinet. For starters, the best reference point that I can point you to is to think about a tequila or a mezcal. Do you feel that Western desert, that Texas ruggedness? Okay, Sotol is like that, but a little bit more refined, smooth, and fragrant. It intrigues the palate and offers these hints of vanilla and citrus. There's an earthiness that often sends me right back to my Trans-Pecos and Far West Texas roots. There's plenty to love about Desert Door. For me, it all starts right there. A close second is just how versatile Desert Door really is. You can go full highbrow, and experiment with concocting a variety of cocktails that call for muddling fresh fruit, sprigs of thyme, sticks of cinnamon. It's perfect for that world. If you're a little bit more down home, if you've just rolled up the sleeves of your denim wrangler button up, it's perfect for that as well. If you're just desiring something that's short and sweet, it hits the mark every time. Desert Door is genuine and authentically West Texan. It's inherently West Texan. 
They harvest soto plants out in the wild and are knowledgeable conservationists at heart. That's obviously something incredibly important to me. They shine a light on what makes West Texas special and unique and worth preserving and keeping it safe from exploitation. Right now, you can find Desert Door all over Texas, Colorado, Tennessee, and there's budding numbers in places like New Mexico, Arizona, California, and Georgia. Best thing you can do is to check out DesertDoor.com to find where Desert Door is locally. Again, that's DesertDoor.com. If this is your first time listening to New Slang, we would appreciate it if you go ahead and give us a follow. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave one of those five-star reviews. Of course, super grassroots around here at New Slang. So telling all your buddies and pals and friends and family about New Slang, that really does go a long way. Go follow us on all the social media stuff. All the links that I just mentioned, they will be in the show notes as well. Check out the merch store. That's newslangpodcast.bigcartel.com. T-shirts, koozies, all that kind of stuff right over there. Anyway, I don't want to ramble on too much. Let's get on to the episode. Here is Joe Ely. Talked with Jimmy, I guess, last week about the project. So that was a a great experience. And I, I loved how I've been, in, been able to get all three of you individually. Um because I think like that that way you guys can ramble on in my life looking back on it you know that that was a songs on this record those kind of, and so a uh, very important part uh of growing up and and when I put a band bar at nice of some tape recorder I didn't have any uh any other way to get it so I'd I'd write the lyrics as fast as I could, and I'd always remember the melody because I I was always played some kind of instrument when I was growing up. So uh, yeah, that that that's a good question because that that was my early earliest memories of uh, capturing songs and uh, taking them and putting them in another place so that they could be portable. Yeah, it, it seems like a, you know, a very magical time in, in this world where um, that I guess like, you know, it, it, this this interesting time when very regional everyone kind of still feels like part kind of, you know, tapping into and showing off what's happening musically to all these, uh, you know, essentially kids and, and people in their 20s and showing them that, you know, there's regional music and there's uh, all this other great stuff that's happening in other parts of the country and world. Yeah. Yeah, we we were fortunate to have that regional feeling to everything, you know, because, I mean, back in when we were growing up in the 60s and uh, 70s and, uh, well, even the last part of the 50s with with rockabilly and stuff. But uh, <clears throat> it was, uh, I don't know, just up to, to Mexico where Wolfman was, was, uh, was 400 and something miles. And Wolfman's power, he had a 100 watt station out of Mexico. And, uh, and so it would reach 
halfway across the United States in both directions. It changed probably very little from Wolfman's original, re- you know, his original radio show every night. But something made that even more, uh, you know. Um, uh, something attached to, I guess, this time period is, is that since, you know, from before this period, um, especially if you're growing out here in West Texas, you know, your parents uh, were working agriculture or you're working yeah. in a real small kind of industry way. But then all of a sudden you're tapped into the other parts of the world and then you're tapped into um, yeah. once you become an adult, being able to travel anywhere. Right. And um, it's it's kind of amazing where there's this like rapid uh, this rapidness in, in technology, but you also have this one foot in the past where you're, you know, talking like you, you still have all these memories and this tradition from, from family who, you know, um, what I'd kind of call the, the calloused hands, uh, generation, right. Of, of being at like working, uh, hard hours, um, out with, with, in, 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 in an agricultural sense. And, you guys have all like, especially you, but like the Flatlanders in general, people from Lubbock have always been in both worlds in a, in a sense. Did you guys feel like even back when you guys were playing in the seventies that you guys were doing this or was that, is that something that, you know, is it just now that whenever you look back that you kind of realize that we were singing songs that were, um, you know, going into the future. Um, but then also, you know, paying homage to the past. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, when I was a kid, um, my daddy uh, had a used clothing store down on Broadway in uh, Lubbock, and uh, he would he would hire me on the weekends to come help him uh, because it Lubbock being an agricultural huge cotton town on the weekends downtown lubbock would uh 30,000 people would come to downtown lubbock and do their used clothes shoppings cuz my my daddy had a used clothes store called the Great, the disabled american veterans store and it was where people donated donated all kinds of things that we sold in that store for you know real reasonable and uh, it it was like those were people that came up from down in Mexico every year. Tens of thousands of people would come and uh, buy their work clothes, their you know their groceries, what they needed. And uh, and it was my daddy taught me a little Spanish, and I learned a little Spanish enough to communicate. And put me on the cash register selling, you know, used clothes stores to the migrant workers. And outside the front door of that used clothes store was uh, was just, you might as well have been in Mexico because it was like there were bands on the corner, accordion bands and bajos. And, and uh, it was just such a, such a whole different culture than Lubbock that it opened a door that I didn't know existed. And, and they, they all, the workers worked out on the, uh, 
like some of my relatives had cotton farms and they needed cotton pickers and stuff. So I had all of these connections to the past where I actually did, you know, make wear calluses on my hands and stuff from uh, lifting those bales of uh, bales of used clothes. And uh, so I look at that as a very much uh, where an inspiration where the subject matter of a lot of my songs came from was working and living and, and fighting to, uh, you know, to keep alive. And uh, that, that was, that was a, uh, especially getting to know Woody Guthrie songs during that time made a big, big turning point to me when I was a teenager. Yeah, I have a, a friend who often talks about how it always takes that one person who's, as you kind of said, like just one degree away from like the, the people who are working hard because they don't necessarily have like the time to, uh, or maybe like the, the ability to take and make their story into a song. And it takes a, you know, obviously an artist or a special person to be where you're able to tap into those experiences, but then also you have the, uh, the resources in yourself to, to make that into a, an actual song or a, a novel or whatever the case, whatever medium yeah. you're looking at. Yeah, that's, uh, to, uh, I mean, the same person can look at, look at the same scene and see a whole bunch of different things. One like sees the emotional part of it and one sees the, the social part of it. And, you know, there's all these different, parts of this same scene, like in Lubbock, the scene is just flat, uh, flat as a, you know, skillet mm -hmm. and, uh, and see a story there, you know, because there's basically some people just look at that and that's a bunch of emptiness, you know, but to, to fill it with song or fill it with a story or, uh, something, from yourself, from your own soul. Uh, if you put that in it, then, then it can become something that uh, people relate to. And, and it, it can go on into, into the world and uh, be picked up by other people along the way and uh, add to it, change it, put their own stamp on it. And uh, and then uh, toss it out into the big wide open. <laughs> <laughs> That's something interesting you said there, as far as the, the 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 emptiness out here in West Texas in Lubbock that that void, uh, that empty space, right? Um, you know, in the past when I've talked to someone like Terry Allen, he's always talked about how that space kind of affected even the way uh, his songs sound where um, I guess maybe sometimes people want to fill in a song with just, just so much stuff sonically and, and make it filled up. And I guess like one of the things that he, he always talked about was how 
space is even a sound. Uh, emptiness is a sound. How, how important do you feel like that's been to understand that like that, that can be um, something that, that affects your, your music and even just a little pause is, is, is a, is necessary in a song. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, I see my overlook my, you know, songwriting uh, life as uh, different times required different kinds of emptiness, you know, and then, and then there was sometimes that all that emptiness dried up and all of a sudden it was like, everything was going on at once in this song in, in my life. And that had to be translated into a song too. So I had to drop the one world and go into another world in, in order to keep, uh, I guess, traveling for me was, of course, leaving Lubbock, going out into the world. But then I went to, went to New York City uh, when I was 17 and, and all of a sudden that was a whole other kind of song, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think I kind of learned by doing that. And then after going to New York city, this was when I was about, oh, 18 or 19. Uh, I, I joined a theater troupe and played guitar in a, uh, in a band in this theater troupe that was, had, come to Europe from the University of Texas. And uh, all of a sudden I had, was putting songs together for a different country, a different city, a different life. And then, but I'd always, I'd find myself, this is interesting. uh, Whenever I'd start on a new record, I'd always come back to West Texas. That seemed to be a starting point for me. And that was like, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. That was like a always kind of a, a new starting point for a, working on a new record or or even a just a song, and that's uh, yeah, that's I have that same feeling. Yeah, the uh, just always having that foundation of of the the south plains uh for something yeah that's that's something that you can obviously see you know in so much of your music this episode of new slang is brought to you by the blue light live here in lubbock texas blue light has long been the heart and soul of the lubbock singer songwriter scene and has been a home away from home for some of texas americana country and rock and roll's finest over the years Talk with 99.9% of the songwriters who have come out of Lubbock and the panhandle at large over the past 20 years, and they'll point to just how integral and necessary the blue light is. With live music and touring slowly but surely coming back, spots like the blue light are getting back to their usual ways as well. That means music every night of the week. Do you want to see that schedule? Well, I've got a few options for you. One, go to their socials and give them a follow. That is at Blue Light Live on Twitter, at The Blue Light Live on Instagram, and of course, by just searching The Blue Light Live on Facebook. They're consistently posting that week's lineup of shows, as well as those heavy hitters that ought to be on your calendar that are coming up on the horizon. Two, 
check out bluelightlubbock.com as well. There they have the full schedule, the cover charges, time, any of those specials that may be happening. While there, go check out their merch page. They have a wide range of hats, koozies, hoodies, sweaters, beanies, jackets, and so much more. You can, of course, get all of your merch needs when you go see your favorite band take the stage at Blue Light. Just ask the bartender and they will get you all set. Speaking of which, that's another great way of seeing who's playing there. Just go to the Blue Light. It's at 1806 Buddy Holly Avenue here in Lubbock, Texas. And of course, again, that is bluelightlubbock.com. I'll throw a link into the show notes too. Maybe I'll see you there. Okay, let's get back to the show. You mentioned just a minute ago, like how you'd, you'd kind of go into these different worlds, these different realms, depending on what was happening in your life. And um, one of the things I've always really appreciated about your catalog is the that evolution and that adaptation as you go through these years where you do have these different, you know, um, moments where, you know, obviously those early Flatlanders, that's like that, this like real folksy, you mentioned Woody Guthrie, almost in that kind of sense. And then, you know, the, those first couple solo records, it's like this country rock, brand new spanking, like, you know, a lot of great guitar playing and honky tonkness. And then, you dip into these other little moments, like obviously like high res, like that's something onto itself. And then um, fast forward to like now, we'll go to like now where one of the things I've really, one of the records that I've really loved is been Panhandle Rambler because I feel like you really just paint the Southwest in a, in a way that's not been done. Um, it's just kind of rarely been done where you're you're using these uh, different guitar players and different kind of string instrument guys to capture a different essence of West Texas. Um, what specifically on like that record? Um, can you take me back to like whenever you were kind of putting that together, those songs together, and wanting to um, you know use a lot of more? I guess like the the instrumentation. Uh, do a lot of the storytelling as well. Yeah, that I wanted to uh, <clears throat> first of all kind of open the the record with a uh, some music that would tell you where you were. Mm -hmm. And I I've always thought that's kind of important to not always important, but most of the time to let the listener know where where he is, he doesn't have to say anything or do anything, but maybe just three notes of a guitar or something, you know, that just, oh, okay, I'm close to Odessa, but maybe further south, you know? Mm -hmm. And and then kind of nurture that, add to the story, This maybe a person comes into the, to the story, almost like a book is, where it's opened up to, one a little by little you you get an opening you get a new page to to churn over and uh and not make it not make it let it become uh you know kind of corny and unbelievable but just add an, just enough 
to where just maybe a car goes by or, you know, something that happens all the time, but it hadn't happened in your song yet, but somebody comes in, somebody knocks on the door. Uh, you hear a car screeching off in the distance and, uh, you know, blinking red light, you know, just adding things as it goes through music and through developing your characters. And uh, that Panhandle Rambler, I, I think I, I had worked on things like Letter to Laredo and records like that, but I think Panhandle Rambler uh, kind of opened the door to kind of controlled uh, emptiness, you know, more so than uh, anything I'd ever done before. Yeah, that um, that record just feels like it's a lot of songs where, as you mentioned, you know, you're, you're kind of putting the listener into these places within those first few seconds with, with instrumentation. And it's, they're all like scene setters in a lot of ways. And you kind of highlight some of like the ordinariness of um, the magic in the ordinariness in a sense, because like sometimes we don't take the time to just look at just the, the beauty in the ordinary or the, 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 just what just commonplace. And, and I think a lot of that record uh, mixes those two worlds together. Yeah. Yeah. I I do too. I'm, I'm glad that, that you see that because that's uh, ordinary is a, is a good word for uh, it's kind of like that movie, the last picture show. Mm -hmm. it's, everything is just kind of ordinary and everybody's trying to be not too uh, noticeable in everything they do and anything they say and but underneath it all there's something brewing that is uh you know not ordinary it's you know it's like uh it's it's serious and you got to take it seriously in order to get to the next step of the story. Right. You, uh, you mentioned Odessa or South of Odessa in, in a sense, a minute ago. Um, one of those early Flatlander records that, that ended up getting reissued was the Odessa tapes. Oh, and, yeah. and I, I think that like, so I'm from Fort Stockton originally, and it, it's hard to understand like, or like fathom Odessa being a place where people would go and record music. Um, but you know, you, you hear stories about it kind of being more of a recording town than anyone I think now would ever imagine. What yeah. was it like back then, as far as, you know, that being a place where, you know, you'd go and cut a record or cut some songs and other artists were going there. Well, so. we, we had, um, uh... I don't know exactly the steps and all, but we had gone down from Lubbock. Somebody wanted to put up some money. Uh, oh, the, the guy in Nashville who we were thinking about recording with, uh, Shelby Singleton, had uh, recorded some stuff, and we wanted to... Uh, 
well, how we wanted to kind of, we wanted to do it in Odessa because we had heard of this studio uh, that Tommy Alsop, who was a great guitar player that traveled with uh, Buddy Holly and, and Roy Orbison and all, he had, after Buddy died, he put his money that he had made in recording in a different studio in Dallas and he put it in into the Odessa uh, studio way out on the north end of Odessa in an everyday looking concrete box with a gravel front yard and pickups parked all around it. Didn't look like anything, no sign or anything. And uh, he had put up the money to put together a collection of songs and, and that became the Odessa tapes. And uh, we only had like, I think five hours, four hours or something. And then we finished and drove back to Lubbock and that became our demo tape. And, uh, and it took me forever to just to find a tape recorder that would play that tape because it was a three track. <laughs> and, and nobody made three tracks anymore. There's an old three track Ampex that they used to use in Nashville a lot that that have that have a stereo set uh, left and right, and then in the middle have a solo where they'd put the vocal, so the vocal didn't fight with any of the other instruments. And uh, that was what Tommy Alsop had put in his studio and. And we got to spend uh, an evening listening to it and, and, and recording there, which later turned into uh, the Nashville uh, recordings. So yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of a big part of, you know, how, those records came about and we were just developing inside of ourselves, uh, just developing stories that were part of West Texas. Right. That's uh, something else right there where that I, I've always really loved how you guys almost have like this shared song catalog where, you know, um, songs get cut by each of you solo and then, uh, maybe like on a Flatlander record and then maybe 20 years later and then maybe 20 years later for a, an acoustic live record or whatever the case. And these songs, they may be the same song, but they have these little worlds that, in which they sound differently. Um, yeah. I've always really liked how to see like the, how a song grows and um, in that capacity. Has that been like the? Have you guys had any conversations about that? As far as like, oh, you know, like what? What's the? Uh, not necessarily like you know, what's the best version of this song? But like, oh, you know, I never saw this in in that song until you did it. Insert on this record, or well, what, what's on, that been like? On this current record, uh, it was actually a song that we two separate versions of the song called. Uh, uh, Oh, Butch's, Butch's song. Uh, anyway, there's two different versions of it on this new one. And, and 
we have we we evolve over time sometimes songs get better and sometimes they get worse you know? <laughs> so we have, have to be careful but uh we have recorded uh different songs and and some of them quite different whole meanings you know same music but different meaning and uh that's what I've spent my whole life doing is listening to uh listening to tracks and finding kind of that inner story that inner uh secret part of the song and uh and try to bring it out to where it's uh you know understandable and and uh where it doesn't get in the way mm-hmm. yeah i i think there's there's something to you know maybe the secret in some of these songs is is listening to the uh the four or five versions of if you were a bluebird that it's it's somehow like you it's one of those uh venn diagrams it's somewhere in the middle of all those songs <laughs> yeah so um yeah. that song probably has dozens of different versions that we have recorded as the flatlanders and my band and you know different different incarnations mm-hmm. the uh the one thing that I, I mentioned two seconds ago that i find fascinating for you in your career is the high-res record that you guys also then put out as B484 since you guys recorded that on a Macintosh before anyone was really doing that kind of thing. And the Macintosh is just an Apple too. Well, <laughs> I, uh, what I find fascinating about it is like, you know, that's something that no one was doing at the time. And what, what a like kind of drove you to, kind of going that route and trying to discover um the, the maybe like what 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 could be uh done on a on a computer yeah that that was a <clears throat> funny time in my life where uh uh my brother had gotten an apple II computer and uh and there was this little you know keyboard in fact i still still got that old computer uh but i was just fascinated that uh, people started writing little little sequences and stuff for it and and it really fascinated me and basically i just took a year off and messed with that apple computer and it that became the the record before 84 and uh, it didn't it didn't please the record company because <laughs> my West Texas country fan base uh, was not didn't feel included in that uh, that period of my life. Uh, but you know, it was at a time when I had to kind of do something else because uh, just the way that my life was going. I had to do something else. And so I spent a few months just putting the before 84 record together. And, and in fact, while I was doing it, I even got, uh, even got to meet uh, a couple of the Apple guys, uh, 
who had invented the Apple computer, Steve Wozniak. And uh, he was working on music things for the computer. And I met him at the University of Texas at a seminar one time, music seminar. And uh, Steve was talking about the future of Apple computers. And this, this was like 1979, 78, something like that. It was very, very young technology. And it, it was, the beginning of it was completely useless and not worthwhile. But then as people started coming into the flow, uh, I recorded a, a, a record that, uh, that I still like to listen to because it's a, uh, kind of a, for me, it's kind of a breakthrough. It's kind of a, maybe to others, it might be a breakdown or something. (laughs) (laughs) But I I found it really fascinating to, to put that record together because I I was always growing up the year 1984 uh, was real big in my, in my imagination as to what was going to happen uh, especially musically in in the in the upcoming years, and he encouraged me to to uh, just look at all different things, not just you know, including computers. And and sure enough, it turned into. I wanted to uh, I wanted to just work on it, and uh, so I, I did very little explanation, and and it was. Uh, not until it actually came out that uh, a lot of people uh, kind of one big gasp in the room of what the hell is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> and I found it kind of amusing because uh, sometimes people take things too seriously when they should find out the boundaries of, of where you can go in something. And, for me, that was that was a couple of kind of looked at as making y'all songs better or your your craft as a songwriter better has been that you've you've also done things outside music, and I'm talking about you know a couple of books that you've published and uh, mm-hmm. like you know like the the play Chippy. Um, yeah. There's a lot of you guys have had little other things that you guys have done. Uh, if that's like, you know, Butch with photography or, or Terry with all of his art or even someone like Guy Clark building guitars, I think that works a different part of your brain. Um, I don't know if like people do that enough now. It's, it's something where like people just kind of get fixated on. I'm just a, I'm a songwriter and that's all I do kind of thing. Um, when maybe if they, if they looked further. Yeah. Then all your songs become about being a songwriter which is, <laughs> is not a exciting world to live in you know it's ba- basically a you know a coffee table and a pen you know <laughs> right yeah and, well and I, I like i like to to kind of step over the boundaries it gives me a, a sense of escape for one thing and a, and uh and it also gives me a 
sense of opening up possibilities. And uh, I think songwriting is all about opening up possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what is, what's it been like as far as, you know, um, a project like Chippy that, you know, has all these other great artists that are on it. Um, that collaborative, what was that collaborative process like? And uh, how did you get involved with, with working on that? Well, uh, mainly working with Terry on Terry Allen on stuff. Uh, <clears throat> we, uh, a friend of ours had run across a, uh, somebody up in, up in North Texas who's working on a, a piece about a prostitute that lived during the Dust Bowl days in West Texas. And, uh, and she was uh, a prostitute and, and also imagined herself kind of as a writer, you know, and kept a journal, a diary. And, uh, and there came a time when we, talked to her about uh, taking the diary and and fleshing it out. And Terry called me and asked if I would uh, look at the diaries and and then read and then write some songs during the, oh, I think it was, when was the Dust Bowl? The teens, 20s, somewhere like in there. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and so the story kind of came out of this diary of this West Texas prostitute. And then the songs, uh, different people came to work on them. Uh, Robert Earl Keane, Butch Hancock, Jimmy worked on, on it for the first, first year. We did it over a period of two years. And there again, it was, it was a, uh, an extension I want to break one more time to talk about our pals over at Desert Door and offer up a quick Thomas Mooney's cocktail minute. As I've said probably a hundred times by now, by no means am I a seasoned mixologist or bartender, but these have been some of my Desert Door go-tos. For starters, let's just go with the tried and true ranch water. Pop the top off the Topo Chico, take a good swig, now pour in some Desert Door, and top it off by throwing in a few lime wedges. Never fails. This one, it's so simple it probably doesn't even count, but again, pretty foolproof. Do the exact same thing, but get you a Mexican Coca-Cola. I guess you can go with a regular one, but you're really cutting yourself short if you don't opt for the Mexican import variety. All right, here's the changeup you've been waiting for, Desert Door Sangria. This one is prime for when you have company coming over and you aren't wanting to just be over there making six different drinks at a time. What you'll need is some Desert Door, obviously, a bottle of red wine, honey, boiling water, apple cider, apple cider vinegar, some cinnamon sticks, a couple of apples, and some thyme sprigs. I know that may sound intimidating, but trust me, it's worth the prep. And honestly, it's pretty easy. For starters, get you a punch bowl, add that honey, those cinnamon sticks, and the boiling water together. Now, you're going to want to stir that all up. 
and let it cool down for about an hour or so. Remember, patience is a virtue. Once that's done, add some Desert Door and stir vigorously. Now add the wine, the cider, and the vinegar and continue stirring until it's equally mixed. Now slice those apples up and toss them in. Put in those thyme sprigs as well. Now you can pour that over some ice and you have a mighty fine sangria. Chef's kiss. Anyway, those have been some of my favorite go-tos as of late. And remember, Desert Door is as versatile as vodka and more refined, smooth, complex, and intriguing than tequila. It's rich in balance, and whether you decide to keep it simple or want to experiment, Desert Door is that perfect Texas spirit. There's plenty more recipes over at DesertDoor.com as well. Check out the show notes for a link. All right, let's get back to the episode. Well, um, I guess like where, where I want to pick up back, pick back up on is how, um, you know, you guys were such a monumental band without like obviously having the, that career where I guess with the Flatlanders is as far as having that name recognition, it was more of a, you know, as that, the, the, nineties record, the reissue of sorts more a legend than a band but still like you guys had such an impact on the music of Lubbock and the music that was coming from West Texas and you see that a lot in of even contemporary and modern modern artists that are coming out of Lubbock um some reason they're they're still tapping into a lot of the things that you guys were singing about and writing about and I'm talking you know um even even folks who aren't necessarily from Lubbock, like like Ryan Bingham, for example, yeah, all just kind of like tapping in and, and looking at you guys as as kind of like that foundational ground level of of songwriting out here. Um, and I know, like you know, someone like Ryan has has been, uh, you know, a guy who's looked up to you and has uh, called on you and, and Terry for advice, that kind of thing. What what's it like? Um, I guess you know, seeing seeing artists, um, who are, are making music today, you know, looking and drawing inspiration from from the stuff that you guys have done. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like we're uh, we're the best known unknown, unknown band. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we always joke about we're the flatliners. but you know we have uh when we you know set off in the world we didn't really have uh, any purpose or ambition whatsoever we weren't like setting out to you know to win awards and and travel the world and stuff because we were uh, really just fascinated with the music and how the same song can be sung in 4,000 different ways. And uh, uh, like the Dylan song that we did on uh, the record, Mm -hmm. uh, She Belongs to Me. <clears throat> it's just uh, kind of the it's 
just another love song, but it's unlike any other one. Plus, it includes uh, strange twists that throw you throw you under the bus almost, you know. And then you say, how did that happen? And we were always looking for, and those kind of things happened in so many different songs. They happened in blues songs. Uh, you know, just a phrase that would would grab you and and put you in a headlock, you know. And uh, so I really don't know how that happened. It, uh, it was just, I think, three three guys bumped into each other and they all three had a open mind and and a uh, a curiosity to what could be or what can be and uh, and we didn't look at where it would take us or or so so many people now uh, they say oh yeah I'm, I'm gonna you know I want to get on this show or I want to get this award or whatever and and it's uh you know I just kind of laugh at that because that's not what uh, a song is about right yeah it's it's kind of putting the cart before the horse in a, a lot of ways if you're already <laughs> yeah. looking for all those accolades before you even get started before you even before you even you know trip over your first stage chord <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i know it's uh it's funny i i look at uh the people who influenced me like going all the way back to when i was a teenager when i was 12 or 13 like uh guitar players like a i remember my <clears throat> my mother uh, opening the door, heard a heard a knock on the front door and opened it, and there was a guy standing there with a, a steel guitar in a case, and uh, asked if he could come in and give us a demonstration, you <laughs> know, with a a steel guitar demonstration. Where else in the world could you? run into somebody giving a steel guitar demonstration door to door. And of course my mother opened the door and let him in and he set up this old uh, Oahu amplifier. I know that because it had a palm tree on it. And, uh, and gave a little demonstration of Hawaiian music, which of course later made its way to uh the kind of the western music of the 20s and 30s and uh so i you know it was thing little things like that that just happened uh another guy down the street had a fender reverb uh and a strat and uh he knew all the venture songs and but but nobody knew him or nobody knew the steel guitar player. It was just their love of music passed on. And, uh, and it was things like that, things completely out of the blue, uh, that I credit, uh, you know, 
my inspiration from. Yeah, all these little moments that kind of just those just nudges, little moments. Yeah, nudge you in one direction, and and you know, years later, that that's it's interesting how you've kind of pinpointed them too. You've been able to reflect and 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 pinpoint even just the something that may have been, you know, that door to door guy. How many times did he do that that day? And you know, yeah. Um, could he remember pro- it? Yeah, maybe not. And, you know, and then, and probably probably was turned away. You know, eighty percent of the time. You know, uh, but I just kind of and and I think you know Butch and Jimmy they had that curiosity. Jimmy had that curiosity on how to you know properly sing a. <laughs> uh Hank Snow song, you know, and uh and he had a kind of a spiritual guide uh that kind of gave him an otherworldly uh sound. And then Butch had just a uh uncanny uh ability to to take just a regular song that had been written and turn it around to where it was, it really was a song. Every, every word, every verse, uh, he had an, uh, amazing sense of where rhymes come from and where they go. And, and, uh, you know, all, all these things kind of added up into when the three of us got together uh, as the Flatlanders. Uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty amazing stuff. And, and although we didn't, we didn't really even call ourselves the Flatlanders at first because uh, we didn't have <clears throat> much else to go on, but just, you know, first record we just took the songs that we thought fit together and and then uh you know put them into a record later on my band kind of did the same thing only uh in a more rock kind of way with uh, the west texas guys that were in the 50s like roy orbison and and buddy holly and and uh all this these incredible singers and songwriters but it was i don't know if it was just luck of the era that i grew up in or what but all of that just seemed to have a mystical uh mystical incantation (laughs) Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned how you know early on you could sense that that jimmy had tapped into this spiritual realm if you will right of the of uh, the way he's able to draw something from a song, pull something from a song. Um, and I know talking with Jimmy, he had mentioned that, that Butch was just right off the bat, really profound at writing. And you mentioned it just then too. Did you, do you feel like you were, were tapping into something early on too, or do you think it, no, it kind of had it took a, me, a minute it to took me, uh, just kind of a fascination with, everything i was just had you know always curious and uh and then discovering 
because I was kind of uh, out into the world after my daddy died, I, I uh, you know, I had to find a a way to make a living and and support my family and uh, got a job at the chicken box on 34th street across the street from Tom and Bingo's. I don't know what it is now, but I got a job there after school, uh, washing dishes. And, uh, and then I kind of, the thrill of that didn't last very long. And uh, so I started playing more. And uh, in doing so, I discovered uh, that Lubbock had a lot of kind of underground musicians that uh, nobody knew about, but uh, got together and somehow, I don't know how, the the communication back then was not so hot, but somehow... I found like players and found Joe Don Davidson and, and uh, his brother Wally and Gary Bass and uh, oh, just different people around town, T.J. McFarland, uh, that, you know, were curious musicians too. And we started a band called The Twilights. And uh, it was kind of a doo-wop 50s band, you know, kind of. Uh, kind of like uh, okay. Hang on, just a sec. Yeah, no problem. All right. So I don't. Okay. I'll wait for Carlos. Okay, wonderful. All right. See you. And uh, we kind of just put some songs together and uh, and actually became a little band uh, that splintered off in different directions. It kind of started off a doo-wop uh, 50s uh, band, but then it kind of split off into the early, early forms of... Uh, kind of when rock and roll splintered off into uh, into you know Buddy Holly and all the mm-hmm. new new direction and everything with so uh, and that allowed me to quit my uh, my dishwashing job and uh, have a band that played kind of the nightclubs we played the old speakeasies where they Lubbock was dry at that time. You couldn't, it didn't have a strip outside the town like it kind of grew up to. And uh, so we played the bootleg places. And uh, there was one out on East 34th, way out, uh, going towards Buffalo Lake. And uh, and all the, the old black joints that were uh, on the east side of Avenue A. And uh, and Joe Don knew a lot of blues on his guitar, and so we we were welcomed to the black clubs, which was a great thing, great inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yep. Of course, it was never really recorded because nobody 
it was kind of unspoken that there were that there was black music in Lubbock. It was, uh, you know, real segregated town at that time. Right. But, but, you know, it was great for the music, which later, later on ended up, uh, bouncing off of clubs and ended up, uh, with me and Jesse Taylor asking Stubbs at Stubbs barbecue. If, if we could play, uh, at his place, just a jam session every Sunday night. And Stubbs said, said I was just about to go out of business and move to Denver. So y'all, <laughs> y'all do what, as far as I'm concerned, this barbecue place is yours, you know, cause we drew a packed house. And from then it, it kind of spread out and it uh, took different forms and, and uh, people started finding out about it and, and uh, it, Lubbock had a a way of being kind of a chameleon. You know, it would change in the way that it that the wind blew and and that the cotton grew. And uh, uh, and uh, there was one time I think my band uh, shrunk all the way down to three people and then another time it it hovered at about seven or eight people so uh it kind of changed with the times and and in doing so uh you know with the music and it's all part all a part of the process mm-hmm. one of those larger than life characters that you played with as far as the the band getting up in numbers is of course Bobby Keys. Um, <laughs> you know, I have to laugh every time I think about Bobby. He was <laughs> a dear friend and one of the funniest people on the planet, and one of the most gargantuan hell raisers that I've ever met in my life. Who could raise hell twenty four hours a day, uh, seven days a week, <laughs> <laughs> and play and play fabulously in between mm-hmm. the, so uh, yeah, uh yeah 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 he definitely changed the direction of the song changed the the, the set and uh also it was just great fun to travel with he, the rolling stones had kind of taken a break there for a couple of three years and uh bobby kind of moved back to west texas and started playing with the planets and with us and, and then would went on the road with us and, uh, actually was instrumental in, in opening up an Avenue, uh, that he talked to Keith Richards about having our band, uh, open for the Rolling Stones, which was great fun. <coughs> Bobby was in, in, inspirational for, for that uh piece of trivia <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh it's one of those things you know when you when you watch some of those rolling stone documentaries and he's in there and it's just kind of surreal thinking like you know this guy's just a a guy from west texas and you know he's yeah no. making uh music on some of the most important records of uh of our lives. It's just kind of surreal thinking about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, that was that was a great great period of time. It's a wonder we made it through. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, <clears throat> One but of the, 40, 40 yeah. years of touring uh, uh, kind of uh, makes you makes you strong. or i guess it's 50 years now yeah well like what is uh i mean i'm I'm sure you know like the nights the uh you can't go as hard as you as you were going in the 80s but like you know do you and i guess like you know this is this past year that's maybe like the the first break you've had in in a a long time what what, what's that been like well it was about as surreal as it could possibly be. I was used to, uh, you know, playing every night, traveling every day, uh, you know, doing, uh, putting out a new record about every year or two and, uh, writing constantly, uh, because I always had a, uh, oh, a, kind of a voice in me that says, you got to finish this record, you know, and I'd always kind of follow that voice. And, uh, and then all of a sudden there was a big emptiness and no voice saying you had to do anything except just wonder where the world went. And, uh, and for somebody who'd been on the road for that long, uh, it was, a very it was literally as if I had jumped to another world that uh, was uninhabited <clears throat> and had to make had to make sense out of it uh, in a whole new different way mm-hmm. uh, because there was not that immediate inspiration out there you had to go and dig for it you know uh, dig deeply for it and uh but you know after uh after the initial shock of it which lasted a few months or six months or something i guess i started putting that putting that period of time that i lost kind of re rediscovering where it came from and finding pieces of songs and and all that I had kind of left by the roadside and uh, and started putting a record together and it became uh, love in the midst of mayhem mm-hmm. and it was a kind of a uh, strange little record for me but it was I just figured that the only thing to get you through, uh, if we didn't make it through in our physical world was love. And so I kind of collected all the pieces of love songs and put them all together into, into a collection and, uh, and it actually became a record and the Flatlanders, the new Flatlanders record is kind of part of that same, that same, uh, thing that happened there going from the the mayhem to the to the uh, going back to work 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to actually ask that. How much of the last record, last solo record and uh, Treasure of Love were kind of, you know, from the same period, the, the same, um, not necessarily sessions, but, you know, close enough, I guess. Well, yeah, they kind of came from, uh, I've always, when recording a record and, and in my studio and stuff, I always just kind of leave the tape recorder on uh, at different times just to kind of collect ideas for possibly the next song or the next record or what, whatever came about. And, uh, and some of these pieces I started seeing that we had already recorded, uh, kind of the basic part of the song and just needed to finish it. And, uh, that's where Lloyd came in mm-hmm. and I just said, Lloyd, can you take this group of, I think it was 15 or 17 songs. Can you take this and just make it cohesive, make it everything feel like it's part of the same planet, you know? And, uh, Lloyd was fighting at the bit to, to do that. Cause we hadn't worked together for a while. And, uh, so uh yeah that's kind of where where treasure of love record came from yeah the the um you you mentioned a minute ago about like i guess the very very early days of flatlanders as far as maybe not having that name and i've heard that like you guys were initially wanting to to go by supernatural playboys um yeah i think that was the first because uh yeah a friend of ours had a little uh natural grocery store uh that referenced kind of natural food and Mm -hmm. is super i think it's called the supernatural supernatural grocery store and that we just kind of tongue-in-cheek called the band the Supernatural Playboys because Tommy's Hancock's band was the uh, West Texas Playboys. Yeah. Well, I forget what it was called. It was, uh, anyway, Bob Bob Wills' band was the Texas Playboys and uh, I think Tommy Hancock's was the Supernatural family band or something. Anyway, we, uh, we kind of finally came to the to the band, the Flatlanders, as we were recording in Nashville. We were putting these songs down, and the transcriber in the studio didn't said, "What are the names of these songs, and where do they, you know, what is the name of the band?" And we had to make it up there in the studio. Steve Wesson said, "Well, I think the." Uh, Super, supernatural. No, the the Flatlanders, <clears throat> and we went. Of course, <laughs> what else? <laughs> that was in about nineteen sixty nine or seventy when we were recording. So uh, it just kind of slapped us in the face. 
<laughs> yeah. Any any regrets? Any hindsight? Wishing that you guys would have went by Supernatural Playboys instead? <laughs> well, no. I, I think that I think that would have caused more fights than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was gonna get you out on this last question here, and that's yeah. Obviously, you know, people always think of Flatlanders as this you know, super group of sorts. And there's been plenty of super groups that have come and gone as far as, you know, the highwaymen and, uh, you know, uh, Texas tornadoes. And well, there's this one little group that an, another little super group that you were part of that was just kind of there for a minute. And that was the buzz and cousins. And, you know, I was going to ask like how, how you got involved with that and, and kind of the, the, the origin story there. Yeah, I just I got a call uh, um, oh from somebody James McMurtry or Dwight Yoakam or one one of those guys who were talking about uh, James I mean James McMurtry uh, had written I guess a screenplay with a with a music that went through it and we got calls i got a call from james mcmurtry saying you want to come down and play on the this record that's going to be the soundtrack for this book and it was a great cast of musicians and i said of course of course i'd love to do that and uh <clears throat> yeah that's basically how it came about and and we flew to i guess it was bloomington and uh, worked in uh, John's studio, and uh, and it became it became a record, and uh, it actually won a country music award in the I think it was about the same year as another uh, really fun band that around that same time was Low Super Seven. I don't know if you've ever heard mm-hmm. of that. Yes, sir. Yeah. But with uh, started out with you know Doug Song, Flaco Jimenez, uh, Augie Myers, all these great Tex Mex, uh, mostly San Antonio guys, but but a lot of Austin guys too. And yeah. uh, and that that one won a Grammy. That was a big surprise for us because we we never. That's the last thing we expected. We were just doing it for the with a sheer uh, challenge of it. And uh, and every time a project like that comes about, uh, like Chippy came about like that, and uh, when it comes about and shows its face as, as a uh, kind of a possible music uh, landing place, uh, then I always love to work on things like that because they they kind of show you a new light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the obviously like all music is at the end of the day some kind of collaborative effort, but in those in those situations where you're getting with other you know like-minded songwriters or artists that are that are also writing and creating. That must also just kind of 
you know, invigorate what you're doing solo or what you end up bringing back to Flatlanders or, or whatever. It must always just kind of be an interesting case of um, seeing how other people create. Yeah, I think the Flatlanders kind of encouraged that because it was kind of a dropping off place for, uh, you know, different ideas that uh, could be worked on by, um, you know, a small group of like-minded musicians and and songwriters. And it kind of had a way of drawing itself to that Mm -hmm. over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, Joe, I think that's uh, about all the the questions I have right now for you. It's been just a pleasure hearing all these stories and and kind of picking your mind here. Yeah, I hope I hope I didn't uh, repeat myself too much, but uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you asked the questions you did because it gave me kind of a different angle to look at and. Um, uh, it gave me a different, different kind of a, you know, side uh, angle, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody's got kind of their own angle of when you listen to music, you see it from one point, but a lot of times you can see it from all different sides. So, so anyway, that's. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Yeah. All right, that is it for this one. Giant, huge thanks to Joe for taking some time. Treasure of Love by the Flatlanders. It's out this Friday. If you haven't listened to the previous episode with Jimmy, go ahead and do so. Be sure to check out the next episode, which is with Butch, on Friday. Check out our presenting partners over at Desert Door and the Blue Light Live. Subscribe to New Slang if you haven't just yet. And yeah, we'll see you later.